We're talking about San Diego punk music today. So kicking us off is Rocket from the Crypt, Bring Us Bullets. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. 
This is episode number 105. As you heard in the opening little segment and the first song, we're talking about San Diego punk music today. So that first band you heard was Rocket from the Crypt. My guest today is Margaret Nee. She is a, first of all, a fan of punk music and has grown up going to shows in San Diego and being uh, part of like the zine culture there and the punk scene. And she's doing a really awesome project right now where she is documenting the entirety of the San Diego punk scene and sort of like more than just San Diego. Uh, I talked with her and when I was going through her flyers, there's stuff down from, from Tijuana, which I know is, is quite close to San Diego, but also up towards LA. She's got these uh, just kind of like, um, well, they're binders, but kind of like you would see people have like like baseball cards and other types of collectibles like that encased in plastic. But she's just got like thousands of show flyers. It's incredible. Just flipping through it, I'm sure if you're a music fan, especially a fan of like heavy music and, and punk music and underground stuff, you'll, you'll be like a kid in a candy store just discovering like these amazing shows that have happened in the San Diego area and the LA area. It was a lot of fun going through all that stuff. So she's going through the process of documenting all of that. And eventually it's all going to be sort of like digitized or digital digitalized. What's the, what's the correct word there? Digitized? Oh, we'll go with that. So that you'll be able to see all that stuff in a digital format. And in that way too, I'm assuming you'll be able to have like a search function and things like that. You know, it'll be cataloged in a way that you could easily access that, that information about, you know, by year, by band and things like that. Um, she's got stuff all the way back from like the late 70s, early 80s. It's incredible. There's a whole section from 86, which is my birth year. <laughs> and there were already all these amazing shows that she was going to. So it's an awesome project. Um, you know, she's knee deep in it right now. She's also got, I think she's starting to collect shirts and other like, not just the big show flyers, but sometimes you get like the quarter page flyers, or at least you used to. I don't know if people still hand those out. Um, but zines also, she was part of a zine called girl. And so we talk about, um, you know, the punk scene, we talk about zine culture, you know, if you're a novice to punk music and zine culture and things like that, we break it down for you so that it's not, you know, we're not just, uh, sharing like, uh, an inside secret here. We, uh, you'll be able to understand it. Um, so yeah, thank you to Margaret for coming on and, um, I would implore you to go to the show notes for this episode to, to check her out and to check out, uh, the project that she's working on. Cause I think it's really, really cool. I love these like old stories too, about, uh, you know, punk shows. I love hearing the, I love the New York stuff. I love hearing about, you know, like the era of like Patti Smith and television and then even like, uh, you know, some of the harder stuff, like I love listening to, to John Joseph's stories about when like New York was just sort of bombed out. I think that Anthony Bourdain's New York, New York episode was really, uh, really interesting and entertaining and really cool as well. So I love that stuff. So I love to be able to hear, you know, old stories, uh, you know, from the scene from a time when, uh, essentially before my time, before I was going to shows and, and into music and stuff like that. And, uh, frankly, before I was even born yet. So I love this stuff. So I got to geek out with her and uh, I'm fortunate that I got to do so. Got to play with her pup also um, and she was gracious enough to, you know, invite me to her home and so 
really appreciative of Margaret's time. So please go check her out and give her some love and follow her project. Okay, if you want to support the TV TV podcast, you can do so by going to Patreon. That is patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. That's a subscription-based service where you can give $1, $5, $10, $10,000 a month, and that goes to keeping these coming. I eventually now have to get back into some form of a normal, normal-ish, because I'm not so normal, but normal-ish type of a adult life here, but I want to continue to do this podcast and to keep it going. So the travels will continue and any sort of financial help you can give would help to keeping these episodes coming, the entertainment, the education, whatever it is that you, you get out of this, uh, out of this podcast. Maybe you're, you're a Sultan, you know, I see, you know, I get the data, the, the regional data and sort of like demographic data and like, uh, nation data from where this podcast has been listening to. Been, people have been listening to the podcast. I can use words, don't worry. And I see like some of, some of the countries are our kingdoms. So maybe you are a royal prince or a queen. Maybe, maybe you are the queen of England and you want to include me in your family of royalty. And you want to shower me in you know, gold pieces and cash and like rupees and, and, and jewels and things like that, like precious gems and stones. Maybe you want to shower your riches upon me because you love the TV TV podcast so much. I did it again, not the TV TV, because you love TV TV podcast so much, you know? Maybe you want to, to knight me Maybe I could be Sir. It could be the voyages of Sir Tim Vetter. The TV STV podcast. You know, maybe you want to give me the key to the city. Maybe you're a mayor. Maybe you are Mayor Bloomberg and you want me to have the key to New York City. So hop on my Patreon account and you can support and it will keep these things coming. And maybe... You know, maybe next time, what is this episode? What did I say? 105, maybe episode 106, the name will be changed to The Voyages of Sir Tim Vetter. Who knows? Okay, following this gibberish that you're hearing right now will be another song. I'm now forgetting what I downloaded, and I think I forgot to write it down. Um, it's a Battalion of Saints. I know that. Oh, my mind's diseased. So you're going to hear another San Diego band right now, uh, Battalion of Saints, and that will take you into my conversation with Margaret. Enjoy, Voyagers.
I'm assuming then you've also, like, you've been a roadie or you've toured with bands? Uh, I just roadied for them. Okay. Yeah. Easy roadie job plus selling merch. Yeah. Around the U.S.? West Coast. Okay. Yeah, up to Canada. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I grew up on Long Island. I've spent my adult life in New York City. I started listening to, I guess around like 13, 14, I started listening to punk music. And around the time when, you know, my friends could drive was when I started like heavily going to shows. Yeah. So Isn't I know, that always the case? Yeah, right. <laughs> so I know a lot about New York. And I think in people's minds, if they think about maybe some of the origins of punk music in the States, it's New York and L.A. I don't think, you know, the first thing that would come to people's mind is San Diego. Right. So is that maybe part of the reason why you want to be chronicling and documenting the, the punk scene here? Yes, definitely. I think there's been a lot of coverage for Los Angeles and New York. And I think the thing is, is so many, there were so many scenes around the country that were in these sort of, you know, second tier cities and small towns and all that kind of stuff. And they're all really unique. And for me, that's been, I've been really encouraged to see people in these other secondary places documenting their local scene because they're all really different and they all have different flavors. The people in the Midwest have a completely different story to tell than we do down here at the border. Yeah, it's something I think is so cool too is like all of this stuff that you've been showing me is pre-internet, right? Yeah. And now, uh, I mean, now you have to sort of painstakingly go through the process of digitizing it and making it available. But now like people will have access to all this stuff that existed in a time when there was not the technology to get this information out. Yeah, exactly. And, And what's interesting too is the the assumptions about communicating are, have changed completely where I have stuff that I used to be, bands used to have mailing lists and they'd mm. send you stuff through the post, yeah. right? You'd get a flyer in the mail about a show coming up. And the, the so the time frame is different. The speed at which um, you, the information moves around is different. Um, the style of things. And, you would rely on print publications to know what was going on in other parts of the country or over in England or something like that. And so you had time to, I think, digest it, make it your own. You weren't, so now people see something from somewhere else. I just did it yesterday and you share it. Yeah. So everybody sees that, but then you haven't actually stopped and maybe made your own version. Um, It was the Stasi in East Germany had a chart of, of uh, sub music subcultures with drawings Whoa. and descriptions so that they would were clear on the different subgroups of music subcultures and who they should be keeping an eye on and who's more political. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. So let's start with you and maybe like, like pre-punk Margaret. Um, okay. What are your earliest memories of just music in general? Like were your parents playing something? I'm probably pretty unique for that kind of story. Um, my dad was an orchestra conductor and also specializing in contemporary music. So that's how we ended up out here in San Diego um, was because the University of California was being formed in 1967. And the first people in the, in the department were com- contemporary composers. So they were then pulling in people from around the country to form this department. So my dad came to 
be there to conduct contemporary work, but also um, a community, a local orchestra. So my earliest memories of listening to dissonant music are actually being maybe five years old, laying on the floor at UCSD at a performance of contemporary music in the 70s, which is very... Um, a lot of people at the time were like, this isn't music. Uh. <laughs> um, and and so I heard a lot of that. So at home, I didn't really have, we didn't listen to a lot of rock and roll in the house, even though I had a couple older brothers. But we listened to a huge variety of music. Okay. I, I had sort of a, maybe like sort of what you, people would assume is like the traditional entry into like the subculture of like punk and hardcore music and that I was quite angsty, um, <laughs> angry at most forms of authority. And that just happened to match up sonically with like fast, loud music that my friends could play because a lot of it didn't require like a, a, a masterful talent of, or craft in music. Um, is there a, a similar scenario for you where you like, what got you into sort of like the content of, of, of the punk subculture? Well, that's an interesting question because I think probably the first thing that got me was the style. Okay. And and the funny thing is, is that the very first thing I ever came across from punk was the Sex Pistols album because my oldest brother gave it to my dad as a gag gift when it came out. Oh, really? And, and even though my folks were, even though my dad was used to listening to some music that maybe wouldn't be, you know, easy to he listen to. He didn't, I mean, he, you know, put it on, haha, ha, but he would never, I was the one who kept returning to it. Even I was, I couldn't actually listen to the whole album all the way through at first. It was too much. Okay. But it also, there was a magazine from England that was part of the gift. And I was really intrigued by that. And what really got me was watching them when they came on tour in the U.S. and the evening news would play this band from England and they'd show them in Texas getting bottles thrown at them and I was looking at what they looked like the hair this torn clothes the sweater Johnny Rotten I was mesmerized because he and he was obviously it was really obvious that he knew exactly what he was doing this wasn't there wasn't a you know a sincerity like people often were performing music pop music or rock and roll, there would be this certain emotional sincerity yeah. to what they were doing. A believability, right? Yeah. And yeah. This, their, their sincerity was was completely subversive and transgressive. And I you could tell they were performing and they knew they were pissing people off. And that was the whole point. Yeah. And I was really intrigued because I wasn't, I was very much an outsider socially, but I wasn't rebellious. It wasn't about that. Um so I tried to get my parents to take me to San Francisco to go oh. to the show. My dad led, looked at me like, uh, yeah, no, that's not happening. Um, About like how old were you at that time? Uh, 16, okay. maybe yeah. 15, well, maybe, 15, maybe a little younger actually. And then in school, then you start um, meeting other people that maybe are listening to unusual music and then you go to the record shop and you know, buy the specials and, and I mean, B-52s, I still have this album that I used to take to, you know, your high school theater after parties, uh -huh. right? And I would DJ those parties. Really? And 
And that record is crazy. <laughs> when you look back at it, people go, oh, new wave, and they kind of poo-poo. And I'm like, that record is nuts when you think about the, the, what was going on at the time. Um, so then I, but then what happened was the best thing that happened really was meeting other people in punk who also were outsiders where being different was the whole point where doing something different was, was celebrated and suddenly having friends. It was literally the first time I had friends and a social group and, um, so I think my parents were, even though it was, you know, your dad's going, do you have to wear the clothes torn? But they were happy that I was had friends and I was going out. So for them, that seemed like a real positive. Yeah, similar scenario. It's its its own little ecosystem. And it's like, oh, okay, now I, I fit in somewhere. Yeah. Like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm abnormal, but I'm normal here. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I, I have to say, I think with punk and early, you know, punk in particular, even um, social um, people who have um, trouble being appropriate socially, mm. that was not an issue if you, at all. Like everybody's, they, you would just go, yeah, well, that's just the way he is. Don't worry about it. And, and so I think in a way that was really, really important. You, breaking social rules was, you weren't banished for that. Yeah. Um, at first, you might not get the address for the party because they don't know you. And they're like, if you don't know, you're not invited. But then you just drive, you figure it out, and then you show up and everything's fine. It's funny, the breaking social rules, it's almost celebrated. And like me now at 32, I'm much different than like 14, right? When I first started going mm-hmm. to shows. But like, it maybe sounds cheesy to say, but I still have a lot of those ethics, but in like a more adult way. But I still feel like my worldview is still pretty similar to the way I felt like as an outsider at that time. Oh, and and I got to say that for me, politically, punk was where I really learned about politics that I've still held on to. Mm. Um, Especially uh, learning about bands from England, like Crass, learning about feminism through that system and seeing how it could tie in to um, everyday life and having in a way that related to me, not um, uh, into my, you know, point of view or my um, milieu and, and that sort of thing. So, for me, it started out as a social thing, but then really quickly also discovering the political and aspects and this and that social impacts on politics. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to put a pin in that just for a second because yeah. I, I want to return to that. But I'm curious if you remember uh, maybe about like the, the first show that you went to. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, I totally remember the first show. Um uh, <laughs> um, it was in Encinitas at La Paloma Theater. And so it was unusual in that sense. I actually wanted to go to shows down in San Diego at the Skeleton Club. Couldn't get anyone to drive me. Oh. So this was the age thing, right? Where yeah. Disney, who has a car, who has a car who can take, who can drive down there? You don't really want your parents to see where you're going to. Yeah, right? like- yeah so I, I tried to go to those shows, but... Um, so there was a show in town in Encinitas, so my dad could drop me off. Mm. And um, it was the Penetrators, 
I think the standbys, a couple other bands. Um, one of the reasons it's memorable is because I got punched in the face that night. Oh. And um, by this girl who, um, so uh, she's super tall. She stayed, I literally tapped her on the elbow because I'm five feet tall, you know. And she just turned around and, and hit me right in the nose. And it, <laughs> it was kind of unbelievable. Later, when Decline of Western Civilization, the documentary yeah. came out, she's in that. Really? She's the one who picks a fight with the band. Whoa. So this girl who picks a fight, I think it was Circle Jerks or somebody. And I, like, I literally jumped up out of my seat in the theater. I'm like, that's her! Like, <laughs> I was having like a flashback about it. Um, and even though, so here's the thing. So I didn't really know anybody yet. I hadn't been going to sit down, coming down to the city for stuff anymore yet. And, um, so I will say one of the, my, my first show had a couple of, of negative experiences. So I getting hit in the face was one. And then the other one was, um, so I go to the payphone in the lobby and call my dad to get picked up. So I go out on the sidewalk and I wait and he picks me up. And some of these guys, some of the older people from San Diego were like making fun of that, you know? Mm, yeah. And which I thought it, it didn't clearly didn't stop me from going to shows and everything. But later I remember going to shows and seeing parents pick up kids. And I thought, awesome parents. How cool are they that they're just like, yeah, I hope you go do this. Um, Unfortunately, there is that sort of fraction or, or faction where there's like the jaded older person who's sort of I, like turning their I know nose that up. Jaded older person. <laughs> oh um, no! Oh no! Absolutely. Yeah. And there is always that kind of. It's in a way, it's a protectionism kind yeah. of thing, I think. But later, I also remember being walking outside my high school one day in this car, and, and I. So my senior year, um, I came the first. I over the summer. So my senior photo, I have long hair. When I when I came to school, I cut all my hair off. I cut a crop. And you walk in, and the very first thing you do is you go to register for classes where all the teachers are there, and you sign up. And the theater teacher, who I'd already been um, in theater classes and stuff, who was had very no, he had a very dry sense of humor, um, kind of scared people a lot. And and he and I walk up with my super short hair, and he looks at me and he goes, "Was anyone else hurt?" <laughs> and I actually literally didn't get the joke for a minute. Yeah. But then one day I was walking, so I looked like a punk now. I got food thrown at me at school, like the whole nine yards. And then one day I was walking outside my school, and this car pulls up and slows down. And I look in, and there's like four people in the car, all punks. I didn't know them, but I immediately trusted them and stopped. They were like, hey, who are you? And so I walked over and this was like it. So we were in this smaller beach town where we just didn't really see that very much. And, and again, San Diego is really spread out. So you, you, the chances of coming across somebody could be really slim. Yeah. Right? And I ended up becoming friends with them. I think I went like I think I got in the car. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and they were all older than me. Um, went and hung out with them. And then that's how I started to meet okay. more people rather than outside of just my the couple of people at school that I knew. Is there a seminal San Diego punk band, like the, the godfathers of the San Diego scene? 
Oh, that's a good question. I think there'd be, there's two different ways to look at it. One would be um, from the timeline view, like who was first. And the other might be um, who got biggest, Yeah. right? Or, um, so the influences are a little different and it's the generations in punk were very tight. Like it's not a, a like um, having children generation, it's, right? It's this musical inter, interlude generation. It's like four years or something like that. So that's a, that's a tricky question. Okay. I'd say in terms of timeline, it would have to be the zeros um, because they were really literally the first band. Um, teenage kids from Chula Vista living near the border, whose families, I mean, they, I will say an extended family, there's music musicians, right? Uh-huh. But for them, it was the style of music. And so kid, these teenage kids who are getting into, who are going to the record shops and picking up magazines and seeing what's happening in other places. Um, so they were really influential all up and down the coast because they were the first. Okay. Um, Maybe I would say in terms of popularity, and we're talking early up to early eighties, right? Would probably be might be Battalion of Saints. Oh, okay. Um, and that was more when sort of hardcore sound, um, and they, I think, and also um, record distribution got wider for for California bands, where it used to be quite small, quite tight. Um, so, and so they might be the one that in terms of sort of hardcore punk people in other cities have heard of Battalion of Saints because they do. Yeah. So there were bands that were influential in terms of dispersing musicians. Like maybe they even changed bands after they moved, like the Dills then became, you know, rank and file and then other, other, as they moved around, um, but in terms of a band that toured intact, probably Battalion of Saints did the most wide touring. Okay. And they just did a they just did a tour last year in Europe. Really? Oh, Zeros are going on a two month tour that right in, in a couple like next month. Wow. So so the influence the influence is kind of huge. Like there's a lot of bands from San Diego that are really big in Europe. When I was in high school, I was listening to a lot of like. Um, like ebullition records, like screamo before that term got co-opted by like popular music, but like, like grind and power violence. Uh, so like I've I never even heard power. See, that's that's so so interesting. Is punk used to be able to manage to cover a lot of different yeah. kinds of music, and then the names of different styles get really tight, and I just lost track. Okay, so I was gonna <laughs> ask like 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 the Locust, Justin Pearson, and like Three One G records. Are you familiar at all? No. Oh, okay. That's yeah. It's like a a whole another subsection of like of punk, but I'm pretty sure that he and and, and like the locust is is from San Diego. Um, we we were talking earlier about how there's this interesting blend of cultures here. So like within punk, you know, there's a lot of like it, to be an outsider is okay, and it incorporates like queer culture and. Mm-hmm. You have that, and then you have like surf culture here, which sometimes can be uh, kind of macho, and you have uh, like military brats and things like that. Super macho. How and and I would assume, and and from like old stories I've heard from like Henry Rollins and so like sometimes like you know like uh, Marines will show up to a show because it's an aggressive place where they can like let out aggression. Uh, how 
did that all sort of mix together here at shows? Well, the other thing too is that I think punk's generally seen as a real white subculture, mm. and um, that can be a real white male too, mistake. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I will say there was a there was a change. There was there's a point where there was a shift, in, um, but. San Diego in particular ha- does have a really unique intersection, I think, where um, so you, have, you have surf culture, where which can also be kind of factional, mm-hmm. right? Um, but also it does have a whole sort of subset of music that goes with it um, and could definitely, I'd say, influence some musical aspects in Southern California in general. Um, the military aspect is interesting because you had either actual military people, right, who are either coming off base or they're AWOL oh, in, in the scene. Um, so people who came through on, in the Marines and the Navy from other places and landed in San Diego. And then there's a, because of the history of, I mean, three different, we have multiple military bases here. So there's a lot of people who grew up in military culture, which tended to have a a real strict macho kind of, so they'd have a strict macho kind of upbringing. So for sure, um, the military, oh, so the other, th- oh, so the other thing of course is the, is Mexico. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tijuana's right here. <laughs> yeah. Tijuana's, I live 15 minutes from Tijuana and, um, Tijuana, well, so you could do a whole show about the scene. <laughs> oh, Tijuana awesome. punks are incredible. Um, but they, the Mexican American um, scene here. I mean, our scene had tons of Latinos in the scene. That was the norm. The first bands were Latino. You know, <laughs> like so for us, that was that's sort of a normal. Having a white only thing was absolutely not the norm. It was um, something that was try. They tried to impose on us. So people, so people in the other country. So this is a, actually another little story about the San Diego scene, which was when um, they try the white supremacists tried to import skinhead racist, not all skinheads, obviously, but they tried to import the National Front English skinhead way of, of um, bringing in racists, yeah. right? To try and bring youth into racism. They would, they tried, in England, they tried to do that. Right. So here in Vista, a sub, uh, um, suburb of San Diego um, was a family that did that. So they really? brought that that idea of racist skinheads in America originated here from racists, not from the skinheads, right? right? But it was their way to bring youth into racism. And that actually was a, a real problem here. You would have like Swazis at shows and stuff like yeah, yeah. yeah. So there there became a real problem of people getting beat up yeah. and attacked from from that. And that absolutely like for anybody who's not in the in part of the punk scene, that was not the norm. That yeah. was an outside entity trying to create that. Um, but we also had um, so the military thing definitely created. We had a very tough scene. We were known. Early on, it, early on as being a real tough scene for um, people coming from other places. Um, we didn't have options for, we didn't have a lot of options for shows. So if people came thinking they were going to be punk and, and ruin the, and like bash the club up, they, w- they would get bashed up. Yeah. Because we couldn't afford to lose a venue to that. So it was very protect. I never felt in danger ever, right? It wasn't random, 
There was no random violence. It was very much a security. It was like a security system. Yeah. For the it, scene, it's a self policing community in a way. Yeah, I mean, I will say then later when it became more known and jocks and other people like that started coming to shows, then things changed. Yeah. And then it really, and that was really problematic. So there was definitely a problem with um, people thinking that's what it was. Because when you see slam dancing on TV, it looks horrendous. Because you can't quite pick up the subtleties of what's happening. And so people saw that and then went, oh, I know what, oh, that's what that is. I'm going to, I can go run around and beat people up. How awesome. Yeah. Um, so there was a definite shift. And I think also um, that's when you, I think that's why people think it's white and male, because that's when the media was picking up on it. Phil Donahue does his show. Yeah, yeah. We had a local show. We had a local talk show. I love those old videos. Diego that, that they did a show about punk. Mm. It's great. Um, somebody had a screenshot of me. Really? Getting in, you know, the mic and the audience kind of photo thing. Um, so... It's that separating the experience from the media's version of what's happening. That crossover, the, that early crossover into mainstream culture that way, I love those old those old videos. Like uh, I'm sure you're probably like very familiar with like Fear on SNL yeah. and those videos. Oh, yeah. yeah. So crazy. Um, well, and there's so much transgressive stuff that was done tongue-in-cheek uh-huh. and um, that you can't, do any you can't really it doesn't come out come over the same way anymore yeah um and so there was a lot i think people sometimes miss the the satire and the humor of punk there was a ton of humor in punk a ton um even in um the way people dressed and in that sort of thing that I think got really missed. People mm. didn't really pick, I think people didn't pick, the, I don't know where they, they're like so shocked that they, they didn't realize how much of it was um, people cheek, having like, a laugh. Yeah. You know? That's a counterculture. Um, one of the, the venues I'm just more familiar with just from hearing about, cause even to this day, their, their shows is a uh, Che Cafe. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I didn't, honestly, I'd, I'm not that familiar with San Diego. So like going through your flyers here from the 80s, I didn't realize it dated back to then. Oh, um, yeah. And it's part of the university here? Holding on by a thread. Yeah, ah. it's it's, a, it, it's at UCSD. There used to be a, there was originally a, um, an army base at that site. So the original campus were um, army Quonset huts and wooden buildings and stuff like that. Whoa. Almost all of those buildings are gone. Um, the Che Cafe is one of the few buildings, one of the few structures left from that era. And it was always... Um, so, so when you think about... We'll go on a slight tangent about UCSD. So it started in 67. They designed, they deliberately designed the campus to not have any kind of central plaza. They made it, they wanted to make it difficult for people to have protests, mass protests. Wow. And stuff like that. So it was deliberately designed to be diffuse in it, in, in architecture, in the layout. Because of like hippies at that time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so the Che Cafe very early on was... Um, sort of given over to student. It was a student-run um, space and was always very radical. 
And I'd assume named for Che Guevara. Yeah. No, okay. Oh, and if you if you see, so if you see it, there's murals on the outside of radical leaders like Angela Davis. Oh wow. And, and stuff like that. So it's muraled up, and so it has a long history of um, radical events. Um, I say in the '90s, I saw G Voucher, the visual artist from Crass, there oh, doing wow. a presentation, and so there's a, been a real range of of activities there. And then in the '90s, they really started putting on shows. So there was. A lot, a lot of all ages shows there. Um, a few years ago, they got threatened. They, the university was going to tear down the building. And um, so they had a couple of years, big, big fight of trying to save that building. Um, the university didn't doesn't really care that much about history that way, apparently, and really wanted to you can probably build a parking lot or another high rise. I don't know. It's like a little city there now. Yeah. Maybe for, for people who maybe are like uninitiated or just, um, you know, don't come from the same background. Like the importance of all ages shows is that like a lot of rock clubs would be 21 plus. So, you know, there goes a, a whole age group that can't get in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, all ages venues are usually like for the kids, by the kids. So there's not, you know, like the, the jacked up security guy that's going to be right. tossing kids out and that type of thing and well, inclusive and, and of everybody. It's great when you, so I did a project, my, my, my archive started when I, through my zine um, work and I, the very first thing that I was really kind of focusing on looking through as in historical context were zines from the, from the eighties mostly. And, um, through all of them is there's a couple threads. One is all ages shows. Mm. And once there started be in and wanting to always make sure there were all ages shows that kids could get into and to res, and that bands should resist playing at over 21 clubs because it was, it, they were excluding the youth and you know, what is punk, but a youth culture. Right. So that's one thread of these. And so the zines, there's always these editorials in zines from about very serious issues about the local scene. And that was one of them. The other one in San Diego is all about the police. And there's a strong thread about the police in San Diego. And we always joke that they had the best flyer collection in town because they knew where all the shows were and would come and... um, Oh, so like we were looking at the flyer of Gang of Four, right? Uh-huh. So that's an ex- that venue, Adams Avenue Theater. Um, the building's still there. It's it's changed. Um, it's it, it was a like a yardage store for years. It's for sale again, and people really want it to become a music venue again. Anyway, but there was, so some of the bigger shows, like we had Bow Wow Wow and uh, Iggy Pop, and people like that so play cool. there, and. Um, Gang of Four played with REM opening. That was a flyer we were looking at earlier. And and I swear, that, so the, what the police would do, so Tim Mays putting the shows on there, he would have a permit for a date, and they would come at midnight and say, okay, your permit's not good anymore, everybody out. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they would do stuff like that all the time. Um, but they, we... So, so there's certain threads in the zines that show you what the concerns were for people at the time. And the Che has been an interesting venue because they also, because they're run, it's run as a collective, they sometimes then, it, it, 
they would have a certain trajectory for a couple of years in terms of what kind of music or what their emphasis was, but also how well they put on the shows really varied quite a lot. Um, but it was a really unique, um, it's a unique location because it's on the university campus. Mm. So it's really, really different in a, in a way that kind of protected them from some of these outside problems with the county sheriffs or the city police but they had the university to deal with too. So they had a, it, they're always teetering on the edge of disaster, it seemed like. But oh. there has been amazing shows that have come through um, and bands that have played there. And you said they're hanging on now. So maybe, does that mean that shows are infrequent or there's opposition? There's, there's shows happening there. Um, I have, you know, I'm going to play old lady and be like, yeah, I don't really get out to those. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there are definitely still shows happening. And they've, I think that fight over the existence of the building itself has really strengthened the resolve of people involved oh, cool. to take it more seriously and to be, to be really firm in making sure that they're seen as a viable space. Yeah. Because they've been asking for things to build back up their zine collection, for example. Um, and there's a, there's a restaurant, there's a kitchen there. So they serve food a lot of times. Um, so they, I think that's, I don't know how long they, I don't know how long, but I think they got at least five, 10 years respite from disaster, but I don't know. We'll see. Earlier I put a pin in, um, something and, and you started talking about it again, but for, for also for people who are not you know, sort of from this world. Can you explain sort of the importance of zines and, and like what the content would be and, and why it's meaningful to like the punk subculture? Oh, yeah. So um, self-publishing is, has been going on since, you know, the Revolutionary War. I mean, honestly, self-publishing has always been going on. But in terms of um, zines and punk music, the 70s really, the origins of punk really saw a resurgence in the origins of um, self-publishing for a certain subculture. And a big part of that was because mainstream music publications weren't covering these bands. So that was really why people were putting out their own publications and, and they were very low and also focusing on local stuff, right? So for sure, early on um, in San Diego, those shows weren't being reviewed in the, you know, in the music section of the local newspaper or something mm. like that. So it was a way for um, people to get news out about what's going on in the local scene, who's put out a 45 um, so there'd be music reviews and reviews of bands from other places as well. And it was really because people, it wasn't being covered in mainstream media. So you had to make it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, the focus kind of changed. So you'll see sort of in the 90s, things morphed out of being, they weren't necessarily, they might've still been people in that scene, but the topics weren't necessarily just about bands. Right. They were going into more social issues, more women were doing zines. So the, the, the trajectory and the topic shifted, even though it, it came out of that DIY ethic of punk. So the first DIY thing of punk was very music focused. Um, 
And then that shifted into other, and, and people just automatically would bring that DIY ethic to other parts of their life. It's it's funny to me because modern day, like consciousness, or when people say like woke, wokeness, or like social justice, these, these issues that are like really mainstream and, and prevalent and prominent nowadays. I'm like, hey, like <laughs> all this stuff was featured in zines back in the day when mm-hmm. I was a teenager and you guys are just sort of catching up to like what the punk subculture was putting out. Like even, you know, sexuality, gender, um, politics, like, uh, you know, almost like off the grid, uh, non-traditional ways of living. Like all of this stuff was featured heavily in zine culture when I was going to shows and it's like, now everybody's sort of catching up to that. Well, yeah. And I think, um, one of the, I think one of the things to recognize is that people who grew up with that subculture went to college, went to grad school, discovered that they could actually get a degree that would allow them to continue to look at their own subculture and um, get paid for it. Yeah. So, (laughs) So I think also it's, it, it, at first I found it really weird when books started coming out about punk and I kind of resisted that. Who were they to tell us what we did? We were there. But now I really value that as um, a way to capture that information. But, they, but I think that's part of it too is those people are now in academia. Mm. And so it legitimizes some of those conversations and gets it into a different um, group of people Mm. and spreads it out that way. Um, The other, the other thing is that I think that they, um, they're looking back at, and so it legitimizes that early stuff too, because they can look back at that. So they're looking at it historically um, and that sort of thing. There's this great, um, group that I found on Facebook that, and they mostly based in England called the Punk Scholars Network. Hmm. And, and it's amazing, especially in England, how much work is being done on mining punk subculture and putting it in the context of, um, the wider cultural issues and that sort of stuff. You, uh, either wrote or you produced the Girl zine? Oh, yeah. I had a, a little group. Girl zine's a go-go. So we did zine workshops. Um, originally talking to, originally aimed mostly at young women who we encouraged to, instead of just um, consuming mainstream media to create their own media and sort of talking about um, you know, media intelligence, like how do you, how do you really see what is being given to you? Whereas you could create your own and, and have your own creative voice. Okay. Um, but it was always, it, we've always opened it up to a lot of different people. So we taught workshops um, and sometimes it would have pop-up reading rooms or exhibits, things like that. Um, so we put out, we put out a couple of zines that were sort of about how to do all that. Um, and then I did a zine in the nineties Um so th- all the people that were in that had passed through the collective had done zines in one form or another. Um, Can you explain for for listeners like what the Riot Girl movement within punk was and continues yeah, to be? Yeah, although I will say, Riot Girl, I wasn't in for me. Riot Girl was like junior, like 
a ne- the next generation of people oh, okay. in a way. So I was never part of that. But what it so but I'll tell you, it was really a response to you know how we were talking earlier about how punk morphed into this hardcore scene of guys being violent and aggressive. And, and, yeah. yeah, this aggressive male um, scene where women were pushed to the side. Right Girl was a response to that. Mm. So it was a reclaiming of that, of this um, radical space and radical music. Um, and so for me, it was, I, I was, came just before that. Um, and so out of Riot Girl was where you really did see that, like we were talking about the topics of zines changing. I'd say Riot Girl was really um, central to that. And to, um, because at the time, and again, at the time, you had to get things through the mail. There was a there was a zine, a big publication out called Fact Sheet 5, where it was basically a listing of zines by topic, hundreds of them. Wow. So you would read the topic and there'd be a little, so I, like I put my zine in that you put a little description and you could get an issue, you send $3 to this address and I would, you'd get a zine back, right? And that was the way that you would connect with people around the country. Um, so it was a much slower pace, but it was possible, right? So instead of a music magazine, it was a zine magazine and how to find out about what other people were writing about in other parts of the country. And you get stuff through the mail that way and trade. Like I have a lot of stuff from the 90s that I traded people, uh-huh. um, other zine makers in other parts of the country. I caught the end of that. Probably for young people today, it sounds ridiculous. Like, oh, I can just, you know, it takes two seconds to download something. You actually mailed $3 cash and had to wait for it to come back. But yeah. like, that's how you would get compilations or even seven inches and and, and pins and things like that. You send a yeah. dollar to the label, you get a band pin. Yeah, but now the internet's used the same way. A lot of people thought with the internet that you that would be the end of paper zines, and it is not at all. Mm. It's cre- it's proven to be a really good distribution method. You fo- post photos, hey, I have my new zine now, and it's still. But instead of sending, you send money through, you know, PayPal or something. Yeah, like that. It's faster. <laughs> but it it has not killed paper, not at all. Um, and that's so for me, because people say, well, why not just do a blog? Yeah. They're totally different. You don't read the same. You don't. You don't sit with things the same way. Um, yeah, it's like a record. Have to be way shorter. It's like a song versus an album. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my god, that's a dating thing, isn't it? Albums and in, in themselves. Well, that's what I was gonna say. There's something different about like having it in your hand. I, I mm-hmm. maybe it's just a romantic way of looking at it, but I don't know. There's there, maybe it's a kinesthetic thing. I don't know, but there's something about having it in your hand and flipping through it that like you're a participant in it almost more well, I mean, so than like literally it's easier to read yeah. too but also it's it's easier to share and but it i think there's also this thing of you know that the person who made it touched that yeah it's very that physicality of it is is i think i think people never going to i don't think people are ever going to lose the desire for that mm. um the same way they're not going to lose a desire for um live music yeah I mean, it the experience is so different or even um how how music sounds um i have some things i'll listen to on itunes in the car and then i p- 
put on the vinyl. It sounds totally different. Yeah. If people think I'm Christ, maybe the vinyl sounds bad because all my stuff's old and I had a cheap record player <laughs> and it's all ruined. I don't know. But th- that physical, the physicality. I mean, I also do. You want to go like I also do sound healing now and the vibration. There's just nothing like the physical interaction with sound that it just doesn't come across in your little earbuds. It just is not the same. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Did you see that thing recently where um, they had they they were like playing um, audio and it it made the sa- uh, the sand take a oh, take yeah. a shape? Mm-hmm. That's so wild. Well, I remember a couple of years ago, my mom. I was listening to something. Um, a record of mine, my mom comes walking through, uh, and she's like, I don't know why you listen to that. It's so simplistic. And I said, well, it's visceral. It's kind of tribal. It's like a beat, you know, like it gets you going. I mean, that mom, I go, if you experience this live, you would, you feel this rhythm. That's what it is. I couldn't convince her. She was like, meh. She would listen to some things, you know, like, Radiohead, Bowie, uh-huh. stuff that was complex. Yeah. She could appreciate. But even though she was a dancer, she couldn't, I was, that's how I was trying to appeal to her. Like this idea of like this rhythm that you feel in your body. Yeah. You, you even get like goosebumps sometimes live. Like oh, it, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We were flipping through like hundreds, pro- probably thousands of flyers that you have here. Um, when you were initially you know, going to shows, were you like, all right, one day I'm going to document these or you just collected them for fun? I don't remember. I pretty, sh- I, I don't know. I I was curious too. I've become curious too. Uh-huh. <laughs> when did I start collecting these? Cause there's somewhere I'm like, did I go to that show? Like I don't like black flag at the La Paloma theater. Was I there? Cause uh-huh. I kind of don't remember that. Um, but I don't know when I started collecting, um, I've always been kind of a keeper. I like to keep things. And I think I appreciated, I did pretty quickly start appreciating the artwork. Okay. Um, so that was probably part of it. I didn't buy a lot of, interestingly, because there were all Southern California bands, because you saw them play so much, I didn't really buy records of oh, right wow. away. So I didn't, that I would be started first collecting. English record, you know, bands that I couldn't see, I would buy their records. Why bother buying the local band's record? Because I'm going to go see them in two weeks anyway. Would you? It was very much a live experience. It wasn't, the recording was secondary. Uh, was it the scene here, like it was, you know, was there shows every weekend you could count on or weekly? Yeah, every couple of weeks, every okay. couple of weeks probably, like all ages shows for sure. And so now I, I don't think we, we got, we were talking about this before we recorded, I think. Now, what is sort of the goal with documenting all this stuff? Ah. Is it going to be made public? It's So I start, I, so, you know, all us old timers are on Facebook and we're talking, you know, everybody's being nostalgic about the good <laughs> old days and telling stories. And I can't help, and, and to be honest, the thing that, becomes noticeable is, is, is in, in somebody dies uh, unexpectedly. And then six months later, somebody else dies unexpectedly. And, um, <laughs> we have the dog in the room and she's sort of bored with this conversation. She's like, let me drop a toy on the floor. So cute though. Um, so I have to say it, that, 
was a really that that aspect was a really big um, imp- reason why I started to do want to do something official. Okay. So to move beyond just what my collection was and 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 sort of talking with people into something that showed the value of these objects and the value of the subculture. Because to be honest, in San Diego, the music scene in San Diego still owes a huge debt to punk, the punk origins mm. of of that, um, including, you know, who's putting on the sh- who's putting on shows locally and stuff like that. So for me, it, as depressing as it sounds, it had to do with people dying wow. and that their stories then disappearing. So I just decided, I mean, we all talk about it. Oh, but wouldn't it be great to who save all this stuff? And so I went, well, fine, I'll do it. Nobody else is doing it. I'm not the expert. I wasn't one of the original punks, but um, I just decided to move beyond my own personal collection and expand that into something that I, I think, and I think it's because I know people who work in archiving that there is value to this stuff, that yeah. a local institution would absolutely value this as a research archive. Um, so I decided to start the San Diego Punk Archive as a way to develop this material, um, catalog it, um, and have not just, you know, so yeah, I want to have a physical archive that I donate to have in a place, but I also want to have a way to collect the digital stuff so that people can, um, see it on the internet in a more casual way and enjoy it that way too. Um, so it's this aspect of um, scanning zines so that people can read a zine from 1980 online and, and, and literally read the whole thing that way. Um, to see flyers, I want to, but also I want to really collect stories um, and collect audio stories. And people go, why don't you do video? And I go, well, First of all, it takes a did just it, technically it takes it's a lot more to work with, but also a lot of people aren't that comfortable on video. They get yeah. very self conscious. But if you just do audio recording, it's much easier. And start recording and digitizing and putting online these stories to match up with the material. So you could look at a flyer and then click a link and hear people talking about the show. Yeah. I mean, to me that would just be amazing. It's one of the reasons why I love doing this. Um, you know, it's a small thing, but I love that someone in Saudi Arabia. Um, so yeah, like on a random Wednesday, I'll get like four listens from Saudi Arabia, and I'm like, mm-hmm. whoa. But I love that someone from Saudi Arabia can be listening and tune into the podcast and hear someone from the Philippines and learn about Filipino culture, or listen yeah. to a mixed martial artists and learn about martial arts culture, and then like tune in and listen to like punk culture in San Diego. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, th- I mean, there's there's so many different stories from around the world, and um, yeah, it, 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 it's it, it's cool to hear about this little slice of like the punk scene that I don't think people would really know about otherwise. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things, and I found that through zines too, where we would get mm. requests for stuff from Indonesia or Japan. That's so cool. We're like, really? How did you hear <laughs> about us? Um, and that it there are those. That you can, I mean, it, honestly, it sort of goes back. It's like uh, podcasts can be like the new pen pal system almost. Yeah. Right? No, it's <laughs> a good it way of looking corny, at it. But I just found some, a cassette that somebody made me years ago that from Australia. Ah, oh, cool. Right? And of local uh, Brisbane bands or something like that. Oh, that's so cool. Um, 
And for me, it's this, it's me, you can then by archiving and then in having digital versions for people, you can time jump that stuff. And like I put on, like, for example, there's a 45, there's a little EP, seven inch EP from a local band, The Standbys. This is one of my favorite bands from back then. I digitized it and put it up on SoundCloud. I didn't ask anybody's permission. I just kind of did it. But I just thought it seemed crazy that other people, I wanted other people to hear this band from San Diego that was so great. And what's fun is that every little bit that I post, I get more people contacting me. Hey, you know, I just see other, oh, yeah, my friend, um, my sister took a bunch of pictures of the standbys. Do you want those? And I'm like, oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, and you, it's it kind of it's like a little spidering out of connections, um, and for me that's been a plus that I hadn't really aimed at. I was looking backward and aiming at trying to preserve this stuff. That's you know you you know I want to make sure I, I get this before we all are dead. But the other side of that is now people can can see it, experience it, learn from it, react to it, create something new based on, um, you know, the inst- being instigated by something old. And from that, what could be better than that? I'd love that's, to- that's punk right there, right? <laughs> appropriate, appropriate from the San Diego punk scene things that you see and make something new. I'd love to put you in a room with Henry Rollins. Like I, I've heard him on a number of podcasts and now he talks like a lot about travel. So it's sort of like uh, both of my worlds colliding. So it's awesome. But uh, I love hearing people sort of like nerd out about music. And <laughs> I think that would be a fascinating conversation. Oh, I'm a, I love connecting things together. It's my favorite thing is I was never in a band, even though, you know, I came from a musical family. I played music. I did get asked to play trumpet in Rocket from the Crypt, and I turned him down. What? Um, can you imagine? But having a tour with those guys all the time, I'm probably, yeah, but- I'm probably glad I did <laughs> Um But, you know, so I was never in a band. I kind of always wanted to be in a band. Who didn't? In, in yeah. punk, you always want to be in a band. But I find, for me, I kind of like being a fixer. Okay. And I like connecting people, and I like connecting all these ideas together and and gathering all these different threads and then seeing what comes out of it, right? And um, having people um, get together and then it turns out they start a project together. I love that. I didn't have, I don't have to always be the one doing the project. I love seeing that creativity happen. Yeah. Um, so this is gives, given, I think that's probably why I enjoy this. Like I have an Instagram account for the for this that is is fun. I mean, it's amazing. I can, it's amazing to me how interested people are. And I think it's just anything that's going to spark creativity in other people is a, is a winner. Yeah, no, it's a really cool project. Like, like I could sit here for hours flipping through those flyers and I, and I think there's a lot of people from bands that would just like love to see this stuff. I think I need to set, I could set up a display. It's so funny now that like of the flyers Uh with a mic. And so mic. if you're, so you oh. mic it, so while people are looking through yeah, the flyers. the reactions. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. We've thought, we've talked about different ways to have, have, um, um, like story collection, um, story core. Yeah, yeah. Right. So a story core kind of thing, like to collect that stuff to me is a real goal is, is to have that, the, 
that just rounds everything out, the material out, I think. I used to, um, for certain bands, I would keep track of like all the shows that I had seen them play. So oh, yeah. this too, like I'm sure you flip through it and like it sparks reminders of, of shows that you've been to. And it's like, oh yeah, I remember that show. Yeah, but interestingly, I also, what I remember is like the interactions in the audience. So for me, this is one of the big keys. This was a little different than a lot of people. People are always focusing on the bands. They always want to have the bands and they want to interview the bands. They want a book about a band that's famous. I want to talk about the audience. Yeah. The audience is full of creative people. What were they doing? So I'm actually super interested in the audience. I don't need to have everybody have been in a band. You know, the the audience people were... were, When the... um, when the Misfits played at the North Park Lions Club, um, one of the girls came and she has this bag and she dumps this bag out. And uh, of course, because it all it shows like the bathroom is where everybody really hangs out. And she made these elastic these she made these yarn forelocks for people to wear in the audience. What, what is a forelock? I'm well, sorry. Well, so in the, uh, so the Misfits all had the hair. They uh-huh. all had these blonde. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Sorry, so I'm assuming right. Okay, so the Misfits. Stylistically, everybody in the band had these long black forelocks that were plastered down in front of their face. Total thing of theirs. So she got elastic and made these little elastic headbands and then took black yarn and attached it and made yarn forelocks. And so that you could, oh my God, the band was so pissed. Really? Oh, yeah. Not a lot of people did, but yeah, because then you put it on and you could go up oh, and it like. It seems like they're getting mocked. Tosser, yeah, so they thought they were getting made fun of, but but that just goes to show you, man. Like, see, punk, to me, that was punk right there, you know? Yeah, I was going to ask you if there was like going back over the catalog of shows in your mind, if there is maybe aside from that one, anything specific that really stands out to you, like certain shows that you're like, that was extra memorable. Hmm, that's a good question. It's, I think I took, we probably took for granted a lot of the shows with SoCal bands and stuff like that. Cause of course I remember the clash. Mm, that's um, crazy. That's so crazy. And also some bands that I'd say probably the, the, the kinds of things I remember were, you know, it's like having X play at all ages show where, because somebody starts throwing something at them. They stop playing, and first you have John Doe's boots fly by your head, and then Billy Zoom's boots fly by your head. Or a Dead Kennedy show where I was sitting, I was up in the front. It was really hard to stand up because the stage is really low. All they just shows, the stages are always like knee high, you're right, because they're like in a union club. Like they're usually union halls. Yeah. So um, it was really hard to stand up straight in the front. And so I decided to turn around and sit down on the stage, which wasn't really helping. I'm like shoving people back. Everybody's going crazy. And Jello comes up behind me and stands against me. Like he plants his legs on against my back and stands there and leans against me singing as a way to help me stay sitting up. Wow. And so those kinds of experiences, it's not really just about, oh my God, such and such band played, but it's this sort of whole swirl of stuff that happens at those events. Those are the things I remember is all the other stuff running around, um, you know, things happen outside or you meet, you know, all the, all the other stuff. It was like a whole social night, Yeah, you know? Um, well, that's a cool so way of those are the things that come up to me, which are this, this, this whole total experience. 
Um, and I'd seen the dead Kennedys before. It wasn't like, oh my God, the dead Kennedys. I mean, I liked them. Right. But it, um, it wasn't like a band coming over from England. Like Bow Wow Wow. But for, for, for East Coasters though, like, yeah, it's oh, funny. Right. Like if you are exposed to it a lot, you sort of take it for granted. Yeah. But then, oh, totally. Yeah. Wow. Um, that, that's the, this phone's going crazy. That's the border interest people. So maybe oh, I'll, yeah. I'll wrap in a second, but, yeah, yeah. um, if people want to find this stuff, find out about you, let's like plug your website. Oh, and sure. stuff. So, um, San Diego punk archive, um, uh, San Diego punk archive.com will get you there. It's really easy to find online. Um, also on Instagram, San Diego punk archive. I just okay. keep it simple. Um, so it should, uh, I should be really easy to find online if you look it up that way. And all my contact info is there. Cool. Um, and especially any questions. I mean, I can't say, I will say that it's hard for me at this point when people say, hey, do you have such, can you send me a copy of sun, such and such flyer? I'm sort of a one man show at the moment. Yeah. So eventually that we're putting things online. Um, so I'm, I have to request for materials a little hard, but, um, I'm totally happy when people are interested in the project and have questions or, um, want to make connections or, oh my God, send me something. I get super excited about that. So awesome. So people check that out. There's going to be show notes obviously for all that stuff. So, I mean, there's going to be show notes. People can go to the show notes and they can find those links. I'll put them there. Um, you don't have to do it this second, but I am going to ask you. So whenever I do episodes like this, I'll have like you know, two or three songs play. I'm going to have you curate that. So oh, yeah. I'm going to have you maybe email me a couple of uh, names of songs that uh, I should have play. I think oh, that'd be cool. excellent. Love it. Cool. Thank you, Margaret. This was awesome. Thank you. Totally fun. Cheers. Okay, friends, voyagers, enemies. Do I have enemies? I hope I don't have enemies. Either way, that's a wrap on episode number 105 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you to Margaret Nee for coming on this episode and for educating us on the San Diego punk scene. Thank you to all of you Voyagers for tuning in as always. I'm going to play you out with one final song from San Diego. San Diegans, San Diegans, San Diegans. Right, San Diegans. If you're from San Diego, you are a San Diegan. So this is a San Diegan band. I brought this up in my conversation with Margaret. Uh, she didn't know about this band, but that's uh, just because I think they're a little bit past her time of participating in shows and going to shows and things like that. Uh, but this was sort of from my era. Um, so this band is The Locust. They are from... San Diego. Why would I say that, right? They're all from San Diego. Where was I going with that? Sometimes, I mean, in a very Michael Scott way, sometimes I start a sentence and I, I, I just don't, I don't know where it's going, you know? I don't know. Something in my brain. Anyway, this is The Locust. That is it for me today, folks. This was episode 105. Thank you. And as always, please take care of each other. Until next time. Bye-bye.